All right, everybody ready? New book tonight. Book of Joel, just need to keep going. Roll one more page in your Bible. Matter of fact, you were probably on the same page that you were last week. Just a little further down the page. As we start tonight, the book of Joel, it says there in verse 1, the word of the Lord. Uh, Please underline that. The Word of the Lord. We need to keep that in view whenever we read our Bibles. It is the Word of the Lord. Amen? Not the Word of Jeff. It's not the Word of the people who edited and organized the Scriptures into English or Latin or German or any other language. It's not the person who came up with what I'm reading out of here, which is the New King James or the Old King James or the NIV or the New American Standard or the English Standard or any other version of the Bible that you might want to read from. Uh, All of them have, to some degree, some merit. Uh, I happen to believe the one that we're using here is, is the most accurate of all of the versions available in English for both the literary content in context and then also word-for-word translation, so it kind of combines the two. But it is the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. And so tonight, I want to give you an introduction to the book of Joel. The book of Joel uh, being the shortest of all of the minor prophets, it is perhaps also the most impactful It is a book that has largely yet to come to pass. And so as we read it, there are three separate prophetic windows. One of them will happen in the time that Joel was alive. One of them would happen shortly thereafter. And then the balance of the book is yet future. And all of that, all of that we see in this book uh, can be divided up in that way that it can be taken future all the way through. But it absolutely spoke to the people then. It spoke to the Jews a short time later. And it is still speaking to us still because it is the word of the Lord. Why do we study it? I've been asked that question. And quite frankly, sometimes people get a little upset with me. I get a little upset with Calvary Chapel in general, but me in specific with the attention to the details of the prophetic Word of God. Because a lot of people just want to skip it. A lot of people don't like what God's Word has to say about our future. And they attribute evil to God because of it very often. It's just like, I can't believe that God would even allow those things to happen. Uh, Very frequently people read specifically the, the book's Uh, that we're in right now, these minor prophets, and they go, well, if it came true already, great. If it came true a short while later, great. Uh, But I sure don't believe that anything like this is going to happen. I can't imagine we've come too far. We, We live in a world that's kinder. We live in a world that's gentler. I mean, how could there ever be world conflict on a global scale? How could these things happen? I mean, after all, don't we have the United Nations? Don't we have citizens for world peace? And again, I'm not so much mocking as I'm drawing attention. That's a large percentage of the world feels that way. And so they look at these prophetic books, and very specifically one that deals with what lies ahead for the nation Israel, 
And they say, nah, not interested. The reason that we're going to study this book and the reason we're going to put time and energy into it, pouring over it, is it equips us for what lies ahead, whether we're here or not. Whether we are preparing the unprepared, which I believe is exactly what's going to happen with us. And so no matter what view you take of the very last days of the age of grace, whether you believe that we're going to go through the tribulation or not, I don't. Matter of fact, I believe very strongly, purposely, and willfully that the church will not be here during the tribulation. But there are going to be people here that may well have met you when the tribulation comes. And if you don't know what your Bible says, and that day does come, and the trumpet does sound, and we who are alive and remain rise up to meet the Lord in the air, and those who are left behind didn't hear from us what's going on, then who's going to tell them? It isn't going to be the Antichrist and his gang. He's going to be a deceiver from the get-go. It's not going to be those who are comfortable in their sin, because they're going to perish. It will have been the remnant teaching of the Bible-believing, Christ-honoring, Word of God-teaching church. And so we are going to study the book of Joel. It is, in fact, the Word of the Lord. And I want to put it into perspective for you as we begin. I don't know when the trumpet's going to sound. I know this. This country right now is, is in crisis mode. And I was listening to some of the conversations that have transpired in Washington, D.C. Uh, a bunch of boisterous blowhards on Capitol Hill telling each other that they've got the upper hand. Uh, that's not good for the people, I can guarantee you that. And I don't care which side of the political spectrum you happen to swing to. I can tell you that the world is unraveling still. Uh, that it's not getting better. We may have more money than has ever existed in human history. We may have greater technology than has ever existed in human history. But we are by far and away the most apostate generation that ex has existed in probably the last several hundred years. We have people leaving the church like never before. We have people who believe that the church is just a social club that you go and meet other like-minded people who don't believe God's word is true either. Uh, we're in precarious times. And so as I read these words, I'm thinking Maranatha. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. I don't know that it's going to happen, even in my lifetime. But I can honestly tell you, I can't imagine that it won't. I just can't. I don't see how the world lasts another 20, 30 years. I really don't know how it happens. Can God do it? Yes, because he's God. But will he? Absolutely no guarantee. And that is the reason you need to look at this book as the word of the Lord. Because what God says, God means. And just because he has delayed his coming to this point, just because he has lengthened the age of grace to 2,000 years, 
just because we sit on the end of this age of grace and people would say, well, we've been there for a long time, does not mean that there won't be an end to the age of grace. The trumpet is going to sound. The question is, what effect will you have had on this earth before it sounds? And so we study the prophetic word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time tonight to draw from you. And Lord, we want to pray a special prayer right now for our Congress. and Lord, for both houses, for the House of Representatives, for the Senate, for our President. God, he is our President. Lord, you've allowed him to be installed in power. And God, we believe that uh, you even work through unrighteous people at times to accomplish your will. We see that in this book. But Lord, the nation is in crisis mode. Lord, we're not trying to overstate it or overpray it. But God, we have fallen far from you. And we have denounced your name to a large degree as a country. We've turned our eyes to false gods. We have undertaken evil things. We are, in fact, as a nation, calling evil good and good evil, as your word declares would happen in the last days. We seem to be in decline. And, Lord, we cry out for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, we pray for revival. Lord, we pray for those men and women who in the Senate right now and in the House of Representatives right now uh, fear you. They call out upon you each day. God, grant victory and favor as you see fit. Cause our nation to turn. Cause our nation to repent. Cause our nation to once again declare that you are Lord and that your word is true. Lord, that's the only thing that's going to stem this tide. And so, Lord, we ask for you to work, to move. And as we study your word tonight, as we set the stage for this great work, we pray that you would bless our ears, cause our minds to receive and to understand. Help us to know, God, what you have to say to your church tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would also add uh, that if any of you heard the rumor, I got it not once, not twice, but three times today, that Pastor Chuck uh, is in hospice care. Uh, he is not actually in hospice care. He, hasn't been, he has been encouraged, however, to do that. Uh, he has chosen in his normal uh, style to say no. And so he uh, is that sick. So he's been advised to, to place himself in hospice care, and he is not wanting to do that. So if you remember to pray for Pastor Chuck, uh, Kay, Jeff, uh, Brian, Cheryl, and Jan, Chuck Jr., uh, it does appear that the, the end of days is approaching for uh, my pastor, the one with whom I serve for nearly two and a half decades. And so uh, keep them in prayer and obviously all the things that God wants to do through Calvary Chapel. Amen. And so as we study, uh, this book at first glance 
is kind of it seems like a downer. It seems like a bummer. You know, you read it and it's just like, man, all this destruction and things getting eaten and people getting stomped on and killed and uh, people great and strong and devouring, devouring fire and all these things. It kind of seems like a bummer. But again, I draw your attention to what we know about the character and the nature of God. And as we look at the character and nature of God, God never does anything out of pure hate and anger. He hates sin. There are things that he does hate. But he doesn't hate people. And he takes no delight, his word plainly declares, in the death of the wicked. So God isn't just going, man, I'm finally, I get to destroy all the unrighteous and wickedness. It will be with a broken heart, with a devastated heart, that God will pull the final cord in, in the, the master plan of the universe for humankind. It isn't going to be with joy that God's going to cause these things that we're going to see to happen. It's going to be with great depth of sorrow because God cares about lost people. The problem is he cares about everyone. And so consequently, he will not allow evil to reign forever. He simply won't do it. And there's going to come a point in time when the balance between dealing with evil and sin and all that's going on in this, on this planet and saving the innocent will ultimately come to that place to where the paradigm shifts and God will step out of eternity and into time in a huge, huge, huge way. And so as we take these three chapters, and it's going to take us a lot longer than you'd probably think to get through these three chapters. I'm guessing probably eight to ten studies at least. You're going to see unprecedented glory. You're going to see unprecedented devastation. You're going to see God act on behalf of of his people, Israel, and for very specific reasons when we get to chapter 3. This book forms the backdrop of why we really can be very sure of exactly why the tribulation is going to happen. This book provides the answer for that. And so as we see a specific phrase when we get to verse 15 next week, you're going to see it uh, in three different ways and five different times. And it is the phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's like, for, for us, it's the day that we're out of here. Amen? It's going to be a glorious day. So on one hand, for those that know the Lord and love the Lord, I can't wait for the day of the Lord. But for the world... It's a day of destruction. It's a day of death. It is a day of judgment. And so there is that fine balance. And like a drumbeat through this book, Joel is going to begin to speak. And I want to tell you, this book, I believe purposely, is extremely hard to date. Very often you can look at most of the prophetic books, and because of the kings that are named, because of the people who are named in them, because of the time frame that that places them in, it becomes quite easy to get very close to the time period at which these words were first written. 
when Joel ministered while he's on this earth. It's not easy. It's nearly impossible, actually, with the book of Joel. Because beyond his father's name and his name, we know nothing to distinguish him from about a dozen Joels in the Bible. There are, there are actually 13 Joels in the Bible. A dozen of them are not him. And only one of them is him. And all we know is his name and his father's name. And so we don't know a lot about Joel. Uh, based on what we're going to see, his interest in the temple, uh, it is pretty easy to speculate that he was at least in Jerusalem. And so we believe that he wrote in the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, We also know from a vast array of the quotations that are in the book of Joel. There are some 25 of them that are virtually repeated word for word in the other prophetic works. And so it is highly likely that Joel prophesied at the same time as many of the other major prophets and minor prophets in your Bible. Uh, I happen to believe that Nahum, Micah, Habakkuk, Uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah all wrote at roughly the same time, probably knew uh, of each other's works. So there's a period of time that places this slightly before both the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions. And so these words were penned before it got really bad with the nation Israel. And there's a reason that we need to understand that, because Sometimes people give God a black eye by saying he isn't fair. I I have listened over and over again to people tell me, well, you know, how come God told the, the Jewish people when they went into the land of Canaan to just wipe out all these people? It doesn't seem fair. Because God always gives warning. God doesn't just arbitrarily pick a people out from the face of the earth or a person out from the face of the earth and say, you know what, I really don't like you. Matter of fact, I've hated you, your cousin, your aunt's uncle's brother's dog. I hate everything about you. I'm just going to kill you. That's not how God functions. God functions in perfection. So what God does, he always has a perfect motivation So what you need to think of when you're thinking of these rather disastrous circumstances is how bad must it be for that to be what God's going to do? How evil does the world have to get for God to act in this manner? It's one of the problems with the increase of evil. People say it's enlightenment. It's not enlightenment. It's evil. When you start calling good evil and evil good, which is exactly what our world is doing today, you're in a precarious place. Because that means the soul of the world has been so affected that it does not any longer want to hear the truth. That it wants to make up its own version of the truth. And so the book of Joel is a three-chapter response to the condition that existed in Joel's time, to the condition of the Jewish people, and to the conditions that would exist in the very last days of mankind's time here on this earth. It's remarkably free of of prophetic denunciations. He doesn't outright say, well, these people were evil and this was bad. It's very general in that sense, and that's why we look at it in the broadest sense we can possibly interpret it.
And so it appears that he's speaking across the boundaries of time. There are some scholars that take this book and it looks like Joel borrowed from you know, one, one other prophet and that that prophet borrowed from him. And quite frankly, none of it matters if it's true. Amen? It would be like me quoting Pastor Chuck or Charles Spurgeon or somebody else if it's true and it accurately says what God has in mind and it's still truth. And so to me, those things are very much secondary to the message of the book of Joel, which is quite clear and some of it extraordinarily clear with regard to what we know will be the conditions in the last time. Uh, The existence of these parallel passages doesn't prove anything one way or another. Uh, I believe that Joel makes no references to time in any way, shape, or form specifically for that reason so that no one will try and say, oh, it happened during the Assyrian invasion, or oh, it happened when the Babylonians came, or oh, it happened when Titus sacked Rome in AD 70. He doesn't say any of those things, and I believe it's purposeful and willful by the will of God. He simply says, keep your eyes open. When these things begin to unfold, Guess what time it is? We, we talk about Israel uh, being the timepiece uh, of prophetic events. And so as we look at this passage, there are some unique things that have already transpired. And interestingly enough, yesterday, Benjamin Netanyahu himself was quoting passages of Scripture saying, Israel has fulfilled Ezekiel's vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, that they are already back in the... He's, as a Jew, is talking about those things. Well, when Ezekiel wrote them, it would be another 2,600 years before that would come to pass. So some of these things we look at and we go, wow, God allowed that to happen. And if he allowed those things to happen at that time, don't you believe what he says in the rest of the story is also going to happen? And so as I look at it, I'm going, Lord, you have been 100% accurate with everything that you have thus far said and done that we have seen as it pertains to your word. I have no reason to disbelieve one iota of anything that's left. And there's not much left. Truthfully, there's zero that has to happen before the church could be raptured. The church could be gone today. This could be your last day on earth. (laughs) Hallelujah. Amen. (laughs) For those of you that just got your property tax bills, thank you, Jesus. The rapture (laughs) is the answer. So one of his favorite expressions Uh, The day of the Lord occurs five times in this book. He's going to talk about formidable enemies, and some of them cannot be explained by things that have already happened. They just simply can't. The events described are so specific in chapter 3 that they can't be anything other than the events of Revelation chapter 6 through 19. They can't be anything but that. They must be speaking of that day and time. Uh, we, we talk about massive armies. We talk about massive battles. We, we think about all of these things, and frankly, nothing even remotely compares to Revelation 
uh, chapter 9 as the million man army comes the two million man army comes into view from the east think about that for a second that that would be two thirds of the entire population of the united states standing in arms everybody men women and children so there are events that are going to unfold that Joel's going to begin to bring into view for us uh, that are going to cause us to really take a step back. Joel didn't originate this prophecy. It came hot from the heart of God. That's where it came from. There's no explanation for these things. And as you, as you look at what's going to transpire, uh, you're going to see three very simple things, and they're going to be an overview of the message. First, you're going to see a natural disaster. And the reason that these things are important that you keep them in view is God is using these things as a type. In other words, he's saying, okay, here's what I've allowed to happen in the past. He's then going to shift to a military battle that's going to occur. He's also allowed that to happen. And then he's going to take it one step further and speak of something that we, the world has never seen, but that the world will see. And so in Joel chapter 1, you're going to see an agricultural and an economic crisis of unparalleled uh, events that happened at that time. You're going to then in chapter 2 see a military crisis. And I believe that in a practical sense, the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian invasion, clearly fit at least the time frame that these words were spoken. And so Joel is saying, look at this disaster of the locusts, and we'll get to this next time. There's coming something that's going to be worse than the disaster of the locusts, and this is how you need to assemble these things. That would be the Assyrian invasion and the Babylonian invasion, so much so that ten of the twelve tribes ceased to exist, to be able to be accounted for on the face of the earth. They were either in captivity or killed. That happened. It's a fact of history. And then it leaves open something that has never happened which is this incredible punishment uh, that will come upon the earth uh, as an absolute, without contest, direct result of how the world has treated the Jewish people and how they've divided up God's land. It speaks very specifically to that end. So if God brought the invasion of the locusts, and if God brought the military conquest of the Syrians and the Babylonians, and he allowed his chosen people to be taken into captivity, there, in my book, is zero chance that what follows in chapter 3, which describes the Battle of Armageddon, is not also going to happen. And so, for us, we need to be God's mouthpiece. You guys should be looking at the headlines in your newspaper, on the internet, the blogs, and reading these things and be going, I can't believe it, it's here. And so when people ask you, you're supposed to have a reason for the hope that lies within you. Because you should have hope. We're heading home to heaven, amen? Now that doesn't mean that we like the things that are going on in the world. I hate the things that are going on in the world. It drives me absolutely bonkers to think that, that, you know, we can sit here and have these conversations like we're having right now and the Congress, the two branches of it can't talk to each other, that our president can't talk civilly to either one of them. 
It makes me crazy that our president can talk to the president of Iran, but he can't talk to John Boehner. It makes me nuts. I look at those things, and I'm like, how can we possibly be here? But then I read my Bible. It's exactly how it's supposed to be right before Jesus comes and gets his church. So I have hope. But not everybody has that hope. And that's where you all come in. Because you're sitting with people that want to have answers for why the world is such a mess. Why we spend so much time, effort, and energy putting together all of these things that never seem to fix the world's problems. It's because they can't be fixed by those means. They're spiritual problems. They have a spiritual answer. And unless you get the spiritual answer, you can forget about it getting solved. Acts chapter 2, and I want to move on and kind of help you understand some of these things, gives us a very clear way to look at the interpretation, especially of the latter portions of Joel. And so as we look at this overview tonight and kind of where we're going from here, notice that Acts chapter 2, as you begin to read it, uh, it says there in chapter 1, in verse 14, that all these continued with one accord in prayer, and the number was about 120. So you have 120 followers of Jesus gathered together, eagerly waiting the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to notice something very specific in chapter 2, verse 16. Peter speaking, this amazing sermon he preaches, what does he say? He said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on, it shall come to pass in the last days. He tells us exactly when it's going to happen. And he tells us what is going to happen. That I will pour out my spirit on all flesh or all nations is actually a better rendering of it. Your sons Your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. So Joel chapter 2, or excuse me, Acts chapter 2, gives us a very clear way to look at the prophecy that is spoken by Joel. In other words, there is a reason for all of this destruction that's going to come upon the earth. God is setting up a period of time where he's going to pour out his spirit on the entire earth. You all know what time that is. It's called the tribulation, the day of the Lord, and we'll be looking at that next week. Peter drew the connection between their continual prayer and the outpouring of the spirit. This is what happened. This is how it went down. You see, that was a down payment for what was going to come later. There have been many revivals. There have been a couple of awakenings, two of them great. There have been times when the, when the world has been uh, very much invaded by the gospel, the power of God being made absolutely known to people, but never on a global scale, not ever. There's never been a time in human history when the entire world's focus began to be, man, It's about Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit speaks very specifically of Jesus who is Christ. Amen? That's the message of the Holy Spirit ultimately, is to bring people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and then empower them to then carry out the message as the light of the world. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Convicts of sin and righteousness. And so what happens? There it was 3,000. 
that began to speak the word of the Lord everywhere that they went. Now can you imagine global dimensions where all flesh is touched? Billy Graham's held some huge crusades. There have even been a couple of attempts to do that you know, on a larger scale. Greg Laurie did the same thing and is going to do the same thing here very shortly. It, it, it just simply has never happened that it's been on a global scale. A few million here, a few million there. That's peanuts when you're talking about 7 billion people on the earth. It's an insignificant percentage, and it certainly couldn't be all nations. So as we look... At Joel, it helps us to understand that whatever is happening in Joel is global. Hebrews chapter 12 says this in verse 26, But now he is promising, Yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And verse 27 says that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, if you know your Bibles... And as we overview all these things going forward, that is exactly what's going to happen during the tribulation. The heavens and the earth are going to be shaken for the express purpose of if there's anyone on this earth that actually has a relationship with Jesus Christ, they will be unshaken, very specifically 144,000 of the Jews who will become evangelists in the very last days, who will be preaching Christ on this earth like nobody's business because time will be very short at that point in time. And so it becomes clear in in comparing uh, the work that happened on the day of Pentecost with what is going to happen yet future, uh, that these things that are spoken of here in Joel are largely exactly that, their yet future, the ultimate fulfillment of all these things, are days that are coming that are ahead of us, even today. The difference is, then they were thousands of years in the future, now they might be tomorrow. They could begin to unfold before your very eyes. I think it is extremely important, because many denominational churches try and allegorize this book. I believe when you do that, you lose the weight of its message. I believe that ultimately if you start to make this simply an allegory about all of mankind and how we've always had war and how we've always had these things, then you miss the very specific language of the prophetic word of God because God's talking in very specific terms in the book of Joel, much more so than really any other prophetic work. Short book, but very impactful. And and so I believe that the greatest and most complete fulfillment of all of these literal events is in a literal future. I believe there is going to be World War III. And very frequently, especially you moms, and I get it, you know, us guys, we're a little more bent towards the, you know, well, let's just go kill something thing. We're kind of that way. That's an, that's an admitted part of how men function in the world. And by the way, you'd all starve to death if we weren't like that as a general rule. So at some level, it's actually good. You've got to kill animals, got to kill plants, you're going to eat. Matter of fact, your Bible says, after the flood, go, kill, and eat. Okay, so, so there is a part of that that you know, is actually God's plan. But when you start talking about human beings, it's a little bit hard to stomach. It's hard to swallow. It's hard to hear. 
it's hard to think of leaving your kids here in that kind of world if the Lord were to take the church home and they don't know Jesus yet. So I get that. And this isn't to scare anybody. It's to make you wise, as Peter said, what manner of people ought we to be in these last days? Because the world is not going to become a kinder place. It may have periods of time where it gets, you know, on track a little bit. Who knows? But ultimately, these things are literal and they are going to happen. And so as we look at the negative events that are described here, of course they were partially fulfilled in history. And we're going to get some specific examples of those things. Of course there's been very large conflicts. We don't have to look too far to see that. We have had two world wars. I I guarantee you nobody was sitting around when Hitler invaded Poland going, man, this is bad. We're going to lose 50 million people on the earth. Matter of fact, people were sitting there going, oh, he doesn't mean anything. Just give him Poland. It'll be all right. Yeah, he invaded the Sudetenland, but it isn't that big a deal. Nobody thought, and people to this day deny, that six million Jews lost their lives in the Holocaust. Horrific. Mind-boggling. Connie and I walked through Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, and um, you, you just are... You're stunned. The man's inhumanity to man, like you've never seen. If you've ever looked at the pictures from the Civil War, from Andersonville, or the battlefield at Gettysburg, more people lost in one day at Gettysburg than died in the entire Vietnam War on our side. Those are inhuman events like you can't imagine. But they are nothing compared to what lies ahead. Nothing. That's hard for us to wrap our little tiny minds around. Because we look at those things and go, man, we're so much smarter now. And, you know, we have better medical care. Even our warfare. And let's be honest, our warfare is actually kinder than it used to be. Amen? When we bombed Stuttgart, when the Allied forces bombed Stuttgart, In one raid, we flew two and a half thousand bombers for 17 hours. They flew over Stuttgart to take out Hitler's war machine. They dropped incendiary devices. They blew that city to bits. We can now do that same damage with one bomb. One bomb. And we can do it from a continent away. Operation Rolling Thunder during the Vietnam War. We flew B-52s one right after another over North Vietnam, and we blew the tar out of that whole northern half of Vietnam. Day after day, week after week, we bombed them into oblivion. The only thing we didn't count on was they had dug tunnels, and basically it did almost nothing as far as harming people. We blew up a lot of water buffaloes. We blew up a lot of grass shacks. 
Now we don't do that anymore. We get up about 35 to 50,000 feet. We let go a laser-guided J-dam, and it goes right through the window of whatever building we want it to go through, and we blow up whatever we want to, wherever we want, whenever we want. But that's not what's being talked about here. It's talking about the kind of global carnage that comes with things that we have never seen. I remember when I was a little, almost a teenager, 11, 12 years old. Some of you are old enough to remember these days. We would get earthquakes in California. That's because they were setting off nuclear weapons in Nevada. We got warnings about when the earthquakes would happen because my dad was involved with the Atlas Missile Program and a few other things. I can't even imagine what would happen if we unleashed those things all over the world. We dropped 15 ton, kiloton bombs on Japan. We have 100 megaton hydrogen bombs now. To give you an idea, that is a little over a thousand times the destructive force of the bombs that we dropped on Japan. We have missiles that can carry anywhere from 12 to 24 independently targetable warheads. Inside of an SSB, a ballistic submarine, there are 24 launch tubes, each with a redundant missile, each with 12 to 24 warheads. You do the math. One nuclear submarine can wipe out pretty much any country on the face of the earth. We have 16 of them. The Russians have an equivalent number. Those things have never been used. But it appears that one day they will. And they're going to be used by somebody who's a world ruler that we all know is the Antichrist. So the Holy Spirit works out. We see very similar messages uh, in Habakkuk and Zephaniah as they prophesy. Uh, Zechariah chapters 12 to 14, same events. Now, it doesn't take a theologian to figure out if God repeats things and he does them hundreds of years apart and gives us the very same message. And then the very last of the apostles, John. Remember who he was. The very last of the apostles to be alive, John. Who's imprisoned his own book, says, for his faith, for the word of his testimony on the island of Patmos. And he gives the same exact message in greater detail. And it's literally the last thing that we hear from the apostles. Do you think God was kidding? The answer is no. He wasn't. And so as we entertain this book, God's going to reveal in all of the things that happened in the past. You know, Moses uh, gave prophetic word, didn't he? David gave prophetic word, didn't he? 
Jeremiah, Ezekiel gave prophetic word, did they not? Ezekiel 38, 39 still hasn't happened. Zechariah chapter 12, 14 still hasn't happened. John writing the book of Revelation, all because they are the word of God, tell us about something that hasn't happened. And Joel gives us the reason it's going to happen. little preview. It's a little tiny country that's smaller than San Bernardino County called Israel. As the world turns against Israel, it's only going to go so far. God's drawn a red line, and it's a real red line. It's not a fake red line. It's a real red line. There's another premise that's found in this book. God uses evil leaders and He uses military invasion. He has done that throughout the course of history. Okay, And God either directly raises up or He allows these evil rulers to exist. I don't believe there's anybody in this building right now who's walked with the Lord for very long, who doesn't believe that God is sovereign. Amen? We believe God's sovereign. Then don't you think he could have known that Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, uh, Genghis Khan, Sennacherib, Cyrus, king of Persia, Don't you think he knew all those guys were going to come and dwell on this earth for a time? So he either had to do one of two things. He had to either allow them or he ordained them, one of the two. And in either case, he's using them. He allows them for his purposes. But God sets boundary lines, just like he did with Job. Do you remember Job's story? Satan did not have full control of the situation. He had partial control of the situation, and only as far as God allowed him. That is true today. And it will be true when World War III ensues. And I'm not being a prophet of doom, by the way, saying that World War III is going to launch tomorrow. But I can tell you this, there is going to be a World War III. Matter of fact, it's going to be a real world war because, quite frankly, we haven't actually seen a world war yet. We've seen some amazing, horrible, horrific wars. And we've seen some wars that enveloped the actions of much of the world. But we're talking about a world war where there's actually war all over the world. Not just in Europe, not just in the South China Sea, not just in the area in and around Japan, not not just on parts of mainland China, not like the Boxer Rebellion in Russia, none of those things, but real, honest to goodness, world war, where the whole world is affected. So much so that by the time we read through the book of Revelation, combine it with the book of Zechariah, look at what Daniel had to say, these prophets that have spoken of old, we realize that about two-thirds to three-quarters of the world's population will be wiped out in seven years. Totally gone. Why? Joel tells us.
we have some coming theological crises, and there's three what I believe are relatively difficult questions, and they're basically answered. We have to answer them. Revelation chapter 11, verse 18 says, The nations are angry, and your wrath has come. One day God's going to say enough's enough. Mankind will cross that red line, and it will be too late, and it will be over, and it will be decisive. So from that standpoint, it's best that we don't disbelieve what God's Word says. Amen? That, that's why when you talk to your friends that don't know the Lord, I wouldn't bet on them having tomorrow. I would not bet on anyone in your family getting another day while they're on this earth. From a practical standpoint, your Bible says tomorrow is promised to no man. Amen? So just from the personal and practical, don't bet on it. But in a much greater scheme of things, you don't know when the trumpet's sounding and you go home. You're going to be free from this earthly bondage, from the pain of sin and death and all the things that go on here. But the people that don't know Jesus are going to go through some unprecedented times that mankind has never seen, and they're going to need the answer. My take is this. If they can't be saved now, I sure want to make sure they're a tribulation saint. Amen? So what? They get martyred. They're still saved. What profits a man if he, he gained the whole world but loses his soul? And that's what's at stake if you misinterpret these books and make them allegorical. Because you start telling people when they see these things, ah, it's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. Nah, your worldview's fine. You know, just go ahead and do whatever you're going to do. you got plenty of time. Anybody in here ever had the person tell you, well, I'll get saved when I get older and I can't do much? Right now, life is just too fun. So, I, you know, I, I mean, if I get saved, I'll have to quit doing this and quit doing that and quit doing this and quit doing that. I'll have to change the way I live. I guarantee you there isn't anybody that would trade one second of the tribulation for an entire lifetime of sin. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 20 says, And the anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days you will understand this perfectly. In other words, in the last days, there, there are some things, these questions. God's a God of love. Why does he allow these things? It's the most common question that I get asked by people who don't know the Lord. It's actually a relatively common question by people who do know the Lord. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does God allow bad things, period? Habakkuk put it this way in verse 13 of chapter 1. He said, Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And he was speaking of the Babylonians. And hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person. A person like Israel... Who's more righteous than he? Habakkuk even had the same question. It's like, hey, this kind of seems out of balance here. The answer is this. God being just and exercising judgment is not a contradiction because he's perfect in all of his ways. He doesn't have an ill motivation. 
He won't strike down a single person who's not guilty, but he will strike down eventually every person who is guilty. And so it's not a contradiction at all. He allows these horrible things that have been going on in our world, basically so people understand they need to make a choice. Think about it. Think about world history for a moment. Do you really think that anybody wanted to be like Pol Pot? The killing fields of Laos? Where literally people were taken out by the thousands, stood in rice paddies, and shot in the head? Now that may shock some of you. That's why they're called the killing fields. For no reason. The Khmer Rouge took people out in the rice paddies by the thousands, shot them in the head, and watched them drop over men, women, and children. And people look, how could God allow that? Because it gives you an idea whose side you want to be on. Because that didn't have a thing to do with God's desire or design. It had everything to do with painting a picture of exactly how wretched mankind is and how far we can go. And we haven't gotten as bad as we can get yet. So there really is, in a way, a purpose. What can we do? Question two. To stop or even minimize God's judgment. Ezekiel 22 says this in verse 30. For I sought a man among them who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Can you imagine? Why do you think it's so, why do you think I beat the drum? You better stand up for your rights as a Christian, and you better speak your values because there's going to come a point in time when the church is raptured, there's not going to be a single person left on this earth to stand in the gap. And so God's going to begin to do things to get the world's attention that he doesn't want to do. He's always been doing that. He did it during Ezekiel's time. He's done it in our time. You know, it's interesting, after all these tremendously horrific world events, there's always followed a great revival, 100% of the time. Why? Because all of a sudden, the other option seems really, really, really good. If you happen to have lived through the siege of Stalingrad, where people killed each other for a potato, killed each other for a potato, then that whole atheistic mindset of Stalin kind of seemed like a bad idea. Amen? One day God's going to finish it off because the net result is he's going to wrap up death and hell and Satan and toss them where they belong in the pit. What do the righteous say? What do we do? Third question before... These judgments come. Family of God, you guys are God's messengers. I am, to be sure, but so are you. You have now the words of life. You have the plain teaching of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, the sinless Lamb of God that God saw slain before the foundations of the world, came to this world, lived a sinless life, 
died on Calvary's cross, was buried in the grave, raised three days later, and lives forevermore to make intercession for mankind. You have the words of life. And when the world starts to unravel, there's going to be nothing more important than telling people the real gospel. Not the fake, pleasant gospel of God's going to make you healthy, wealthy, wise, rich, beyond your wildest dreams, take care of your every whim, because God doesn't promise to do that. He doesn't promise to calm every storm. He promises to get you through every storm. He doesn't promise to smooth out every rock. He promises to get you over every rock if necessary, if he's got to carry you himself. You have the words of life. But if you diminish what this says, then there's absolutely no sense of urgency. And I believe that's why the prophetic word of God says what it says. There should have been urgency because of the locust plague that was coming. There should have been urgency because people could have looked at the Babylonian and the Assyrian invasion and sensed urgency. There should have been urgency the moment the people of God were removed from the land of Israel. Because God said all those things would happen before they ever happened. There should have always been a sense of urgency. Now think about it. Those things have come and gone. But part of God's word has not come and gone yet. There's supposed to be a sense of urgency in the body of Christ. Because tomorrow is not promised to any one of us. Because we do not know one day he will come as a thief in the night. One day the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise and we who are alive and remain will meet him in the air. There is supposed to be a sense of urgency about the gospel. And if we start looking around the world and we know what our Bibles say in Ezekiel 38 and 39... In Zechariah chapter 12, 13 and 14, and Revelation chapter 6 through 19, and here in this amazing book, the book of Joel, and what we've already seen in Hosea, and what did Daniel say, and we start putting them all together, there ought to be a real sense of urgency that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. Amen? That's why it's here. We don't want to skip over it. We need to be urgent. We need to remember what it is that we're here for. When trouble comes, God's going to rescue His people. We're going to hear, Great and marvelous are your works, O God. Amen? Revelation chapter 15. King of the saints, your judgments have been manifested. You're coming back to fight with the Lord at the Battle of Armageddon. He's going to fight the battle. You're coming back on a white horse. But you want to make sure everybody makes it. Satan desires to plant lies about God. That either he doesn't exist or he's unjust or he's unfair or he's lying even worse. The truth is how you counter that. Guess who bears the truth? The church. You have the truth. And it's not like Al Gore's inconvenient truth. 
It's a truth that actually hurts if you don't know Jesus. And it has eternal consequences. I almost died laughing. I was reading. There, there's been a, I don't know if you noticed this, but the, the science is starting to bear out exactly what many of us have believed for a long time. Not only has the temperature of the earth not gone up in the last 15 years, it's actually gone down. There is more sea ice in Antarctica than at any point in time in the last hundred years. Oops. Inconvenient lie is what that is. But this is going to come true. There's no speculation here. There's no inflated pseudoscience. It's the truth. We need to be taught the book of Joel. We need to know what it says. We immerse our lives in the truth. We're ready for what lies ahead. Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and he sa- it says there, He said to me, Son of man, uh, eat the scroll, go, and speak to the house of Israel. It's kind of a weird thing in the book of Ezekiel. It's like, eat this. It's like, what? Why? And so I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said, Son of man, feed your belly. Fill your stomach with the scroll, and I ate it. And my mouth, it was like honey, and it was like sweetness. Revelation chapter 10 gives us the other side. In verse 9, it says, And I went to the angel and said, Give me the little book, which, by the way, is exactly the same word except in Greek that's in Hebrew in Ezekiel. And it says, Scroll, give me the scroll. And he said to me, Take, eat, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. You see, there are parts of God's Word that are bitter. And there are parts that are sweet. And for those of us who have named the name of Christ, it's sweet. But for those who don't know Him, it's very bitter. And when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. It says in verse 11, He said to me, You must prophesy about many nations and kings. So when you hear the hard things, God speaking through the Apostle John as he wrote the last book of the Bible says, when you hear the bitter things, speak prophetically. Talk to the people about what you do know about the God who loves them that has no desire to see them judged. No desire to pour out his wrath on them, but he will pour out his wrath at one point in time. So the choice is yours. You can look and live. You can hear and obey. Or you can reject, deny, and die. If you choose to believe and live, it's sweet. That's why we need to know what it says. So we make sure people know the truth about the days in which they live. Amen? Next week, the first 15 verses. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Bless us as your people. God, we are grateful for the truth of your word. And God, it is bitter at times. Lord, we admit it. It confronts us. It throws a monkey wrench into our gears. It turns over our apple cart of life causes us to have 
sleeplessness at times, Lord, when we think about the people we know that if you came today, they would perish. Lord, they'd be here during the tribulation. They might even perish eternally. And so, Father, we pray that you'd give us that expectant, imminent picture that you're going to return. We love you. We praise you. We bless you. Make us strong, Lord. Help us to give the sweetness. Help us to give the bitterness. Lord, help us to speak the truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen and amen. Go be a messenger of the truth.